Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages, connected to a worldwide network of activist correspondents. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Thanks very much for your questions and comments on the new format, and a special thanks to those of you who have become one of our correspondents. The success of this new format is going to depend on reports sent to us by the network, and we're recruiting now. So please drop us an email if you'd like to help bring local cannabis news to a global audience. And for those of you who would like to be absolutely certain that you can continue to access Radio Free Cannabis, please visit my website, stevedangelo.com, and add your name to our mailing list. That way, if any of the third-party platforms that host this show decide to censor or disappear Radio Free Cannabis, we'll all be able to find our way back to each other. Please remember to support the companies that support this podcast, Harborside, Liberty Clothing Company, and the Homegrown Cannabis Co. Moving on to a quick wrap-up of the most important cannabis news stories this week. The big news is that two more countries, Mexico and Israel, have taken major steps towards legalizing cannabis for all purposes. Legalization in Mexico will create the world's largest legal cannabis market, and legalization in Israel will help accelerate the amazing research and development work already being done there. We'll have more on these good news stories later in the show. Sadly, our next piece of news is not so good. In Spain on November 18th, leading cannabis activist Albert Tio entered prison to serve a five-year sentence. Albert's incarceration flows from a 2011 raid of IROM, a groundbreaking Barcelona Cannabis Association he launched in 2011. It appears to be part of a larger crackdown by the central government of Spain. We'll dig deeper into Albert's situation with an in-depth report from Spain later in this episode. In the United States, the March for Cannabis Progress continues at the state level. As we mentioned in our last episode, the general election of November 3rd saw a clean sweep of victories for every cannabis reform measure presented to voters, and that included five voter initiatives in both red and blue, conservative and liberal states. Now, from the deeply conservative red state of Virginia, which was not one of the states that passed a voter initiative, comes the news that the governor of the state, Ralph Northam, has called on the legislature to legalize cannabis for all purposes in 2021. The governor's statement, which was probably influenced by the victories of the voter initiatives, is remarkable because Virginia has a very long history as one of the most prohibitionist states with some of the most severe sentences in the entire country. Virginia's capital city of Richmond was also once the capital of the Confederacy that fought to preserve slavery during the American Civil War. And disparate enforcement of cannabis laws in Virginia 
have put the brunt of prohibition on communities of color. We can now only hope that despite its long history of racist actions, the Virginia legislature actually will pass a legalization measure in 2021 and relinquish this mechanism of racial control. If that happens, we can expect the neighboring state of Maryland, where I grew up, to fully legalize as well, further expanding the range of cannabis reform on the east coast of the United States. For our final headline of the day, we take a quick look at the United Nations, where the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs is scheduled in early December to vote on World Health Organization recommendations that cannabis be globally recognized as a medicine. A successful vote would be a major step forward for the UN, which currently classifies cannabis as a dangerous drug in international treaties. And it would enable and encourage individual member nations to reform their own cannabis laws without violating treaty obligations. A joint statement in support of the WHO recommendations has been signed by 183 organizations from 51 different countries, encouraging activists who initially anticipated a smaller number of signatures. While the WHO recommendations do not speak to adult use or so-called recreational use, their passage will help build the foundation for further reforms being called for by UN member states that have already fully legalized cannabis, or very much want to do so. Moving on, we will now hear from our insightful and effervescent correspondent, Caitlin Donahue, reporting from Mexico City. Caitlin is also the host of Cronica, a Spanish-language show about Mexican cannabis culture that airs every Thursday on Radio Nopal. Caitlin, what do you have for us? So Mexico took a huge step towards legalization yesterday when the Senate voted 88 to 18 with seven abstentions to advance cannabis regulation. Uh, the Senate was tasked with dismantling laws against individual rights to marijuana access by the Supreme Court two years ago. So we've been waiting. Um, but cannabis is not legal in Mexico yet. So now this legislation goes to the Chamber of Deputies, which is the lower legislative house. It goes back to the Senate and then it goes to the desk of President AMLO, who has expressed uh, lukewarm support for cannabis legislation, let's say. Um, this bill that was just approved by the senators, it reflects what many user advocacy groups see as laws that inappropriately center the industry over equity. So failing to ensure that indigenous communities, the communities most affected by the war on drugs are the ones that are gonna be in a position to benefit from the new legal industry. Um, mind you, 40% of business licenses under current legis under this current uh, draft of legislation have been set aside from individual for individuals from those groups. But many advocacy groups like Regulación por la Paz, Movimiento Canabico Mexicano, they say that that's nowhere near enough that's going to protect this industry from being taken over from very large companies. So uh, keep in mind, under this new law, also, you won't be able to have more than 28 grams on you legally. And there's a sentence of five to 10 years jail time for having over 200 grams. Um, and to give you an idea of the legislation's uh, vision of what homebrew is going to look like, it's going to be illegal to grow cannabis in your home unless you are registered with the government, allowing government agents in to revise your house. Uh, you don't have kids around, which is a huge issue for parents, of course, uh, and you can't grow more than four plants. So um, all these things aside, people are still trying to put a positive spin on this. 
still trying to see it as an important first draft of cannabis legalization and likely it will open up opportunities for some Mexican businesses, which is super important because I know that some projects actually haven't have gone under, have not been able to get off the ground just because of a lack of clear regulation around cannabis products. Um, I could name Chula Herbs, which is a black and queer owned CBD tincture company from down here. They waited around so long waiting for the government to firm up cannabis legislation that since they had one partner that was born in the United States, they just went ahead and transferred the company to the United States, which isn't really cool because we need those products. I mean, Mexican consumers do want that kind of stuff down here. So anyways, uh, but you wouldn't have known that the country was on the brink of legalization from the hike that it took to get to this year's Mexican Cannabis Cup, which I had the pleasure of attending this year. Um, the fourth edition, which was actually the first edition in Mexico City, was in Ajusco, which is this mountain town that's on the southern edge of Mexico City. Um, took place in this like huge field, very socially distanced. Um, also, it was kind of sparse crowds this year. I don't know between uh, how far out in the woods it was. But also because of what's going on with COVID all around the world these days. Um, the Cannabis Cup here was founded by Alonso Soria. He was one of the co-founders. He started out as a grower and a grow shop owner. He has this place called Mundo Verde in Playa del Carmen back in the day, among other stores. And when I talked to him for my radio show, Cronica, he told me that his goal with the cup is to teach growers about good, cult good cultivation strategy, how to avoid things like heavy metals showing up in your, in your flower, etc. Um, he also said that everywhere the cup has gone, it's inspired local cultivators to start doing events of their own, which is really cool because sometimes in Mexico, locally sourced information about growing cannabis can be hard to come by. Um, and I did want to say to Radio Free, Radio Free Cannabis uh, that the winning indoor grow, the winning indoor flower uh, was grown by this collective called The Originals, but the name of the nug was actually Oaksterdam. So shout out Bay Area. I know y'all are Bay, Bay people like me. Um, I was also happy to know the presence of at least one member of the Chamber of Deputies at the Mexican Cannabis Cup. Um, that's, again, the legislative chamber that is now going to be debating and forwarding, hopefully, this cannabis legislation. Um, Sergio Perez Hernandez is an Estado de Mexico legislator from President AMLO's Morena Party. And he was having a really great time, despite the fact that he had on like a business suit, which was kind of my tip off that this man perhaps was a politician because you don't see that suit action uh, too much at the Cannabis Cup, <laughs> but um, he said that he had been having a great time checking out what the industry looks like right now uh, in cannabis in Mexico. And he told me, quote, I declare myself pro-cannabis. You have a champion in me. So yeah, I don't know. Keep your eyes on Mexico. This country is about to be the world's biggest population with legal cannabis. That is huge. And it's going to continue to be a really important story in global cannabis news. So for Radio Free Cannabis, I'm Caitlin Donahue. Thank you, Caitlin, for that great wrap-up. The debate that's going on in Mexico underlines a new stage in the cannabis freedom movement there. It's no longer a question of whether or not cannabis will be legalized. It's about how cannabis is going to be legalized. Who will reap the rewards of the regulated system? It's a great development, and hopefully one we're going to see in many more countries. But as we go through this process, we see some common themes beginning to emerge. The displacement of indigenous and traditional growers, the desire of existing elites to dominate the new industry, the use of regulations to determine the financial winners and losers, and an abiding overall sense of distrust and stigma still towards the cannabis consumers and the culture that we've built. 
Legalization is an important goal, but it's not going to be the end of our struggle. In fact, in some ways, it's just going to be the beginning of a new struggle, a struggle for the soul of the legal cannabis industry, a struggle to make sure that our tribe is strengthened and empowered through this process, and that we end up in a place that reflects the values of equity, justice, and sustainability that cannabis teaches us to honor. Creating a new industry is not sufficient. We have to create an entirely new kind of industry, an industry that smashes the standard corporate mold, that provides an example of transformational change for other industries to follow. Now, back to some more good news. We hear from our dear friend Saul Kay, reporting on the ground from Tel Aviv, Israel. Hello, Saul. Uh, big news in Israel this week. We finally got uh, approval to move forward for legalization of cannabis for adult use. Uh, it's pretty exciting. We're expecting this to happen pretty quickly. They promised a nine-month uh, time frame for full legalization uh, adult use in Israel. I find it a little bit hard to believe that they'll do it that quickly. I've been in the process of licensing my pharmacy here uh, for the last six months and it hasn't moved. So I don't think nine month time frame is realistic, but certainly into 2022, we're looking at a legal adult use framework in Israel. Uh, the next steps are the Ministry of Justice to start drafting the law. Uh, it then goes up to the parliament in the first reading. It has to go through three readings, uh, but it is greenlit at this point and it's now just a matter of time. Um, and it's fantastic news for, for all of the recreational users in Israel and for the economy. This is gonna be a big boom uh, for the cannabis industry, which has struggled internationally. And as we've seen in legal states across US, as they open up, uh, it is an incredible market to, to be part of and to see it opening up in front of us. Um, we don't know what the rules are gonna look like, but there will be dispensaries. Uh, they will be for 21 years old and above, and you uh, can get it if you're a tourist. So uh, this should be a boom, hopefully after uh, we get through some of the corona um, limitations, we'll be up and running uh, with a really robust international destination cannabis country here in Israel. Um, thank you, Steve, uh, at Cannabis Free Radio. I uh, love being your correspondent, and I look forward to bringing you more news from Israel uh, in the coming weeks. Wow, Saul, that's tremendous news, and it's like really a huge regional first. Legal adult-use cannabis in the Middle East. Um, we're really looking forward to hearing more details about what the system in Israel look like, what kind of opportunities it might present uh, in your future reports. Now, given that Lebanon has already legalized medical cannabis and that the two countries border each other and that it would be natural for them to trade with each other, we may one day be able to hope that cannabis commerce between Israel and Arab nations might begin to build a bridge of peace throughout the entire region. Moving on to South America and continuing our run of good news, we have a report from our virtually globe-trotting correspondent, the ever-ready Bill Weinberg. Thanks, Steve. A new day is dawn for medical marijuana patients in Argentina who have finally won the right to home cultivation three and a half years after medicinal use of cannabis derivatives was officially legalized in the South American country. 
President Alberto Fernandez on November 12th signed a decree that had been issued by the health department earlier this year stating, quote, it is imperative to create a regulatory framework that allows timely, inclusive, and secure access for those who require to use cannabis as a therapeutic tool. The decree applies to patients enrolled in the official cannabis program registry, or Reprocon, and also to pharmacies, which will be able to produce their own derivatives. These may include both CBD products for sale to the general public, as well as THC-rich derivatives for those registered with the government program. A provision also allows for free or subsidized access for the uninsured or indigent. In a refreshing instance of bureaucratic honesty, the text of the decree acknowledges that the change was a fruit of popular civil disobedience. It admits, quote, a significant nucleus of users have decided to satisfy their own demand for cannabis oil through self-cultivation practices. And networks were organized and civil organizations created that over time won not only juridical recognition, but social legitimacy. Argentina passed a medical cannabis law in March 2017. This was largely due to the efforts of a hero mom, Valeria Salich of Buenos Aires, who openly broke the law to produce cannabis oil for her epileptic son, Emiliano. She became the central figure in a South American international network of mothers who cultivate cannabis, appropriately named Mama Cultiva. But the law restricted use to oils and derivatives, and private cultivation was not allowed. Two government research agencies were approved to oversee cultivation, the National Council for Scientific and Technical Research, or CONICET, and the National Institute of Agricultural Technology, INTA. Strictly limited imports from Uruguay were also permitted, and then only of high CBD strains with virtually no THC. Mama Cultiva tweeted after the law was passed, quote, without a doubt, self-cultivation is a form of democratizing medicinal cannabis, and we will continue struggling for this. In the interim, many medicinal users were forced to purchase on the illicit market. Large quantities of contraband cannabis come in from neighboring Paraguay, which is now South America's largest producer of illicit marijuana. Small quantities for personal use have been decriminalized in Argentina since a Supreme Court ruling in 2009. But what this means was left undefined by the ruling, with the question left to the discretion of the judge hearing the case. Similarly, the new health ministry decree does not set limits for the number of plants that can be grown at home, leaving the question up to enabling legislation. So this will undoubtedly be the next challenge facing Argentina's cannabis community in the months to come. For Radio Free Cannabis, this has been Bill Weinberg with the Global Ganja Report. Thanks, Bill. It's wonderful to hear about this expansion of rights for medical cannabis patients in Argentina. I had the pleasure of personally meeting the Mama Cultiva Collective when I visited South America several years ago. Their courage and compassion were inspiring, and their strategy was brilliant. It's very difficult for any politician to argue with a mother holding a sick child in her arms. And it's also powerfully destigmatizing for the general population. Mama Cultiva is one of many such mothers groups around the world. 
In many places, they've been the leading edge of reform, the very first to stand up, often in the face of incredible risks. Their example of love and action is one of the things that lets me know that we're on the right course, that we're moving in the right direction, and that without any question, one day we will see full victory, right? I'd be willing to go into any battle, anywhere, against any odds with the mama bears on my side. Turning now to Spain, the country which colonized Argentina and much of Latin America, we are going to take an in-depth look at the legal ordeal of leading Spanish activist Albert Tio. Tio, of course, entered prison on November 18th, and we're now going to hear from Oscar Párez, a friend and colleague of Albert's, a organizer in the Spanish Association movement. He's going to give us an update on the ground from Barcelona. Oscar, what can you tell us? He's currently in prison and he has to serve five years along with uh, another member of the board of the Cannabis Social Club that he founded in 2011. Okay, and can you uh, walk us through the events that led to, to this case and this imprisonment? Um, I knew Albert in 2012 and um, he was, uh, along with other people, the responsible of opening one of the most mind-blowing cannabis social clubs in Barcelona. He was a pioneer in, in, at that moment. And uh, he was not the first generation of activists. In fact, he was like, I would say the second or the third. So he was bringing to the cannabis scene other um, points of view. And that's why I, I tell you that the, 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 the place and the activities and the, the, the mindset that you could feel in that cannabis social club was another thing. So he opened a new page in the history of cannabis social clubs, even though uh, at that moment that was also um, received as something breakthrough. I mean, uh, it was too new for some activists to understand that this was the next step of the cannabis social clubs, that somehow he also received some criticism. But at the end, I'm sure he helped to bring this conversation to another level and to push the debate for the regulation. And at the end, um, he contributed to change the conversation. That's what I can tell you. And what made the creation, the association that Albert created so distinctive relative to the other associations? It was the, um, the space itself, how it was designed, how it was uh, thought to perform several activities. It was one of the first in bringing a stage where uh, you can have an amazing um, cultural and musical musicians and also um, all, all types of activities. Also promoting activities with the members out of the club itself, like uh, doing some kind of sports, some kind of uh, excursions. So as I told you before, he brought some more values and some more, uh, it, he made more attractive the model that it was before. And um, I would say that everything changed after IDAM, his club was open. 
One of the reasons Albert's case is so important for us to know about is because it seems to be part of a larger pattern of repression by the central government of Spain. Nowadays, people are being charged with a very big um, that, uh, um, sorry, that no, uh, prison sentences. And Albert is the first person. He has been fighting for eight years with uh, judicial um, um, problems. And finally, he was the first that could not avoid entering to prison. So I would say that now we are entering to the darkest night of the cannabis social club model in Spain, because now people is actually going to jail. And this, this means uh, a big challenge to this model. That's just terrible news. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact of the situation on Albert and his family? Albert has three kids. One is almost uh, 18, is 17 years old, but the other two are really, one is five and the other is three, I think. And uh, he was sharing in the last uh, uh, press release that we did that the, their sons did not really understand what was going to happen to uh, his father. He was saying that uh, their kids were asking him if they were also heading to jail with him, I mean, they were not really understanding what, what's happening with, with his father. And I know this situation has affected also to his um, relation because he, he got divorced at, at some point. So I think this has had a, a very big impact on his family life and he's trying to keeping it together, but um, I don't know, this is a bomb for every family, I guess. Thanks for bringing us up to date on Albert's situation. What's going on now in terms of getting him released? Uh, there are two strategies, I would say. One is the social one. Uh, all the cannabis activist movement is gathering um, through uh, next to Albert's case, trying to bring attention to it. There have been some um, change.org uh, campaigns, you know, to gather signs, collecting signs. More than 15,000 signs have been collected. There was also a petition to the government to ask a pardon for him. This was done in January, but it has not arrived and he's now in prison. And then there's the other strategy, which is the legal strategy. And as this case has arrived to the highest level of the courts in Spain, which is the Supreme Court, now the only way to try to um, fight this is going to the, uh, to the European Supreme Court. And now their uh, lawyer's team has done this, and this is now in the European discussion court case. So there are two efforts moving forward to release Albert right now. One is seeking a pardon that's going on in Spain. There's been no response to that thus far. And the second is going to the European High Court to see if it will reverse this uh, outrageous sentence. How do the attorneys feel about the prospects for Albert's release on either of these two um, efforts? The only problem, and that we all know it, that the European uh, justice system is very slow. So in fact, Albert has five years but after one third of your penalty prison, you can begin to go out some nights and to spend some time out of jail. So the problem is that we do not, do not expect that the European Supreme Court can rule about this case 
before these two or three years. So at the end, maybe Albert can win the case in Europe, but he will be actually out of uh, the prison at that time. So that's why uh, the social movement in Spain, um, if, if we push a lot, maybe we can have or the pardon or the legalization, which also we will fight for some social justice um, measures like releasing the prisons as you are fighting in USA. Can you tell us about Albert's current situation? What prison is he in? What are the conditions in that prison? How is he doing? Have you spoken to him? Uh, Albert did a, a short video five minutes before entering to jail, and then we don't have more news because inmates cannot have communication in there. Um, the, the prison is at one hour and a half from Barcelona in Manresa. I will share with you the direction because anyone can write to Albert if, if they want. And what we know is that there's a, a support group of people which can, can be uh, bringing some energy to Albert, some uh, news to Albert and to spread the word. And this is how we will try to, to reach him and to stay connected to, to him. I know that also they want to do like some kind of reporting, written reporting about uh, his situation. But at the end, um, I mean, the conditions in, in the Spanish jails are more or less equal for all inmates. So he's uh, in a regular um, prison and with a um, lot of other inmates. And actually nowadays, uh, I was speaking with him one week before and here in Catalonia, you know, I'm based in, in Barcelona. Uh, some of you might know that we have also a very strong political um, challenge between Catalonia and Spain. And Albert decided to go to the prison where nowadays uh, seven political representatives or of Catalonia are inmates because in 2017 in Catalonia we did a referendum and um, the Spain, Spain what, what they did is try to stop it and send the police and beat the people. Maybe you saw the images. So the politicians that were running the referendum are nowadays in prison. And Albert wanted to go to that prison to, to be closer to them. Well, that would be an appropriate choice, given the fact that Albert is also a political prisoner. Oscar, I know many people in our audience would like to help Albert. What can they do? I, I would say that uh, behind Albert, uh, there's a huge network of uh, associations, federations, and different platforms trying to, to bring attention to the cannabis legalization in Spain. So connecting to those organizations and uh, each person or each company or each law firm, whatever they want, there's a, a way to engage with this conversation. Uh, there are, in all the regions of Spain, people connected. So also we have uh, lots of events where these uh, topics are discussed. So I would just say that uh, engage with those movements, with those spots and, and those social networks and, and just bring attention to the case. What we are trying to do is to push this government uh, to, to have this topic on the agenda. This government is now on the first year of their four year of ruling. So now it's crucial that this discussion enters this year 
to, to the agenda, because if not, uh, this big uh, legalization debate, it's not going to enter on the two last years of the, of the um, period that they are ruling. So it's now or never uh, push this uh, legalization topic and try to make pressure so Albert can get his pardon and all the other political prisoners that we are political prisoners that we have that are uh, waiting for this pardon that have been asked many months ago. So um, we have to make some noise. Oscar, I will tell you that I have been shocked by the lack of news about Albert's situation. Uh, I, I stay up on cannabis news pretty regularly, and this is a case which is mostly unknown outside of Spain now. And I think that the International Cannabis Tribe has a duty to come to Albert's rescue here. Uh, this is one of the most intrepid, courageous cannabis activists, one of the most effective cannabis activists that we've ever seen anywhere in the world. He has put his whole family, his whole life on the line, and he is now suffering the consequences for it. And we need to make absolutely certain that, that everybody in our community all around the world knows about this, gets in touch with the organizations that we will make available to all of you, and contribute money, contribute time, work to build the awareness of this case. We cannot let this stand, just cannot let it stand. Oscar, what else should we know about the situation in Spain? Um, I would like to, to share that even though now no one was expecting this, I mean, I, what you're saying that no one knew outside this Albert uh, repression case, but the fact is that our mindset was not ready to understand that actually those people that for 20 years have been running clubs could end in jail with five years of prison. So I think that we also have to learn a lot about all this framework uh, of prison, like your project, Last, Last Prisoner's Project, or other experiences that have been all around the world, because now we need to um, understand better all these anti-repression strategies, all these community um, sustaining through community, all these individuals, all, all these situations. Uh, so the paradox is that we were not expecting this because we were thinking that this was going to be normalized and legalized because it was actually happening. The, the model was uh, uh, from down to top, but it was working. People were creating jobs. Uh, there was no profit. I mean, it, it was amazing to see how vigorous and, and shiny was this model. But it totally shifted to a very dark uh, scene and we were not uh, ready to, to receive this. In fact, uh, it's not only the civil society that has done interesting things like building more than 1,000 clubs in Spain. We have had more than 30 municipalities here in Catalonia doing their municipal bills to uh, legalize the cannabis social club activity in their in their cities so uh, the the problem is that at the central it's like in the united states at the federal level or here it's on the central government they are they have this moral vision uh, they, they are in fact they support the war on, on drugs let's say but from municipalities and from regions there have been actually uh, proposals, laws, uh, 
in favor of normalizing this situation. For example, in 2017, here in Catalonia, we are 7.5 million people. We developed um, um, a law in the Catalan parliament, but it was pushed by civil society. Uh, we collected 57,000 signatures of Catalan citizens. And if you go through 50,000, then the parliament has to debate this. And the Catalan parliament approved a law. It was the first law in all Europe regulating the cultivation of cannabis. And it was approved by a big majority of Catalan political representatives here. The problem is that four months after it was suspended by the Supreme Court, the same one that bring Albert to, to, the, to jail. So as you can see, and I told you before, the Supreme Court is totally controlled by the politicians. And all the attempts from civil society, from municipalities, from regions to do a more rational and more open-minded uh, proposal for this reality are every time, every time destroyed. So uh, I think that Spain or Catalonia and, and Spain, we have a lot of things to show. In fact, uh, I have been able to contribute with some research in these cannabis social clubs, trying to explain what is going on in there, how it works, the model in the social aspect, in a political aspect, but also in the health aspect, because um, there are a lot of risk reduction strategies. There's a lot of knowledge that is shared between peers and those clubs. And we wanted to capture all this reality because we think it's interesting, not only by ourselves, but also in, out of uh, our boundaries, out of our frontiers, because we, we, we know that the social club model has a lot to spread uh, around the world because it's a way not to put the profit on the front. Uh, it's a way to put the community on the front. And we see that with this, responsibility spreads, uh, solidarity spreads, and culture spreads. And we wanted to, to show this to the world, but it's ending up in a very ugly and stressing situation. And now maybe we have to change our mindsets to, to do more uh, social justice problems, as, as you said, that we really don't have that experience, unfortunately, or luckily, because it means that before we didn't need it. But um, actually we have like both sides, a very dark side and a very shiny side. This conversation with you, Oscar, reinforces my belief of the importance of all of us talking to each other on a global level. Some of the patterns that you're identifying, the federal and regional and municipal uh, conflicts, the areas that we find opportunity there. We were just talking to uh, Priya Mishra from India, and she's talking about a very similar situation in India. Of course, we've seen the same thing here in the United States. We've also seen periods of reform followed by periods of intense repression. Uh, progress in this movement does not ever go in a uh, unbroken curve upwards in a positive direction. There's always a step forward and a step backwards. It also impresses upon me the unique contributions that come out of each one of our scenes. And Spain, I think, has gifted something that's extraordinarily precious to the rest of the cannabis community. And this is the idea of cannabis associations. 
We all hear a lot about the cannabis industry. We hear about all of the billions of dollars that are being made, the intergenerational wealth. And we think that, at least here at Radio Free Cannabis, that that's an important part of the movement, that if we really want to make cannabis mainstream around the world, that we need to have room for corporate cannabis. We cannot allow it to be the only form of cannabis. What we know is that when profit becomes the defining motivation of any organization, it affects all of the decisions. It affects the way that it works, and it affects the influence that it has in the world. One of the things that the cannabis plant teaches us is to be generous, is to build economies of sharing, is to do things from the heart, is to be suspicious of actions that are motivated entirely by financial gain or even greed. And so this is a very simple principle. Um, the way that I look at it, the Spanish association model can be put in place anywhere around the world that has three principles. One, that individual human beings can grow and consume cannabis. There's many countries that that's true in now. Two, that those human beings have the right to associate with other human beings who are doing things that are legal to do. Uh, it, it's a pretty simple legal structure. And what I would argue is that in all of the places where these very, very intense regulatory regimes are being built with huge licensing fees and taxation that make it impossible for people who are not already wealthy to be involved in the industry, right? needs to be supplemented with this nonprofit sector, a place where people who are really motivated by love of the plant can come together, people who don't need to build intergenerational wealth, people who are happy to raise children who are strong enough to thrive in the world on their own and share the riches more broadly. Uh, it's a simple concept, uh, and I think it's something that everybody, every activist, everybody who loves cannabis around the world needs to look at carefully. And um, I really appreciate this unique contribution of Spain to the cannabis freedom movement worldwide. Oscar, thank you so much for being with us. Please give our highest regards and all of our love to Albert, to his children, if they can understand that, or at least the older child. And uh, we'll be checking in with you regularly to monitor Albert's case, and we'll do all that we can to make sure that the whole world knows about the situation. Thanks a lot, uh, Steve. Um, I want to recognize that uh, you have always had an eye, an eye of what's going on here. We invited you in 2012 to the first Catalan Forum of Cannabis Social Clubs. And I will always remember that you gave an amazing speech, uh, more reminding some of the topics that you, you said now, which is uh, remi reminding people that there's a connection between cannabis and, and, and our hearts in the sense that if you approach it um, with a clear heart to it, marvelous things bec become, be begin to happen. And how community gathers uh, next to cannabis and how relations are built through this plant, uh, that's a concept that you reminded us and it has had a big impact on me and I've always remembered. It was very inspiring. So 
I want to, to say thanks again and keep this inspiration to the cannabis movement, please. Thank you. Thank you, Oscar. Please let Albert know that he is in our hearts and our minds and that we'll be watching his situation carefully moving forward. So there we have it. The pace of cannabis reform is uneven. Progress doesn't always move in a continuous, unbroken line. Sometimes we win and sometimes we lose, just like any other mass movement. It's very encouraging to see two countries come so close to legalizing cannabis in the same week, and it's horrifying to see one of the longest-lasting and coolest cannabis scenes in the world subjected to brutal attack by the Spanish state. I think there's a few lessons for us to take away from this episode. One is that even in places that exhibit a great deal of tolerance for cannabis, like Spain has for many years, our tribe will not be safe and free until cannabis is completely legalized. It's not enough for us to live in a gray area of tolerance. We have to demand total legitimacy and settle for nothing less. Another lesson I draw from this episode is how important it is for us to learn from each other. What is happening in Spain now reminds me of what happened at the end of the 1970s here in the United States. The 70s were a period of growing social acceptance and legal reform until Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, and he unleashed a level of brutality on us that most cannabis consumers had never even imagined. These patterns, victories and losses, forward and backwards, are likely to repeat themselves again. So cannabis activists should carefully study what's happened in other parts of the world to prepare for what may be coming in your own country. And finally, this mix of very good and very bad news that we just heard impresses upon me the need for us to build not just our movement, but to also build and preserve the culture that has grown out of cannabis. Because we know that culture drives politics, not the other way around. People usually fall in love with the cannabis plant and cannabis culture before they become activists. And so we have to make sure that we continue to sing and dance and gather to create art and music and fashion, to share laughter and experiences, and to always be proud of our connection to cannabis and celebrate the gifts she's given us. These things will be like signposts for people who want to join us. They'll come and our movement will grow and we'll become better able to come to the assistance of people like Albert Teo and eventually to spread cannabis freedom to every nation on planet Earth. Thanks for listening today. I look forward to seeing you next week and send my special greetings and love to those of you who are in challenging circumstances, in countries or cities or families that don't respect your choice to use cannabis. You may be having difficulties with employment or housing or religious authorities, or maybe even facing imprisonment or in prison right now. Remember, you are a part of a tribe that is hundreds of billions of people strong, and we haven't forgotten you. We know well that our work is not over till everybody on the planet who uses cannabis is safe and free, and we won't stop our work until we complete the mission. So stay strong. Always remember, you are on the winning side of history, and our love is stronger than their hate. I'll say goodbye for now and look forward to connecting again next week.